This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Reconstructionist by Jonathan J. Foster. With so much changing in our society around sexuality, authority, patriarchy, religion, truth, and more, what we need is a book to help us navigate those changes while keeping love at the forefront. The Reconstructionist is that kind of book. Pick a copy up today on Amazon or any other fine digital retailer. The Reconstructionist. People greater than text, mercy greater than sacrifice, and love greater than fear. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're reading a poem by Natalie Diaz. The title of the poem is If Eve Sidestealer and Mary Busted Chest Ruled the World. And it's from Diaz's collection, When My Brother Was an Aztec. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jean, how are you this week? Hey, hey you. I'm doing very well. I'm excited to talk about this poem with you. I am too. And I like that we're doing something a little bit different from the rest of the series so far. Yeah, a little bit different. I wanted to just let listeners know that we're definitely reading the Bible against the grain <laughs> again, as we usually do. So in that sense, we're still querying the Bible, but I have no idea how Natalie Diaz identifies in terms of gender or sexual preference, so we're not implying that Diaz is a queer writer, however queerly we may read, but we are reading Diaz because we're approaching what many Americans call Thanksgiving and what many Native Americans call a national day of mourning. That's right. And Natalie Diaz is a Native American poet. She's the author of a poetry collection called Postcolonial Love Poem, which won a Pulitzer Prize. And that was in 2020. And the collection that we're reading from today, When My Brother Was an Aztec, that came out in 2012. And we thought that we would maybe take a break from some of the queer writers that we've been exploring to be able to give attention to a Native American writer as we approach Thanksgiving and, for some, a National Day of Mourning, which I know might be a new idea to some of our listeners, and I'll talk about it a little bit. The The name of the poem is, I think, is kind of fun. I want to revisit that really quick. If Eve side stealer, I mean, how fun is that, yeah. right? This this very playful um reimagining or even kind of empowering her instead of thinking of her as secondary or just, you know, as the biblical text does. She, This is a fun way to um, name her powerfully, I think. And then Mary Busted Chest. I don't know why, but that one <laughs> kind of makes me giggle. Um, yeah. What if these two women ruled the world? So yes, as a way to get into or to 
lead up to the poem, uh, we're going to read a couple passages very, very briefly because we do assume that, well, we've read Genesis 2 here before and probably more than once. And I'm, we know that many listeners are at least vaguely familiar with those first couple stories in Genesis, even if you've not been personally um, in faith communities, you've probably heard about that whole Adam and Eve thing in the garden and the thing about one person being created first and the second one being you know, from its side and yada, yada. So I have changed some of the pronouns and the words just to reflect the way I like to read it. But this is just very brief, quick refresher on why Diaz uses that language of side stealer. So I'm reading a couple verses from Genesis 2, starting with the creation of the first human and then the creation of the second. Uh, so in verse 7, the Lord God formed Ha'adam from the dust of the ground, Ha'adama, and breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and Ha'adam became a living being. And then God creates all the animals to be to see if any of them will be a good partner for this creature who is alone. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and every animal of the field. But for this Ha'adam, there was not found a partner as its equal. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Ha'adam, and it slept. And then God took something from the side. It's not quite ribs, but anyway, and closed up the place with flesh and that piece that the Lord God took from Ha'adam, God made into a woman and brought her to the man. So that's Eve's uh, coming into the world, according to Genesis. Thank you. And knowing what we're going to read, I want to also mention that Eve is mother of all living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We think of it as a name, and I appreciate what you did with Ha'adam and Ha'adama. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think often in the way that the stories are told, it sounds like every place that those words appear, that they're proper names, and they're not. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate what right. you did with that. I try to yeah. keep it a little bit more real yeah. instead of man or Adam. Yes, yeah. it's just a human. It's just a being until we have two. Mm -hmm. And did you want to go ahead and read the passage that reflects Mary as Diaz engages her? I would love to. So this is from Luke, and this is the first chapter in Luke, and it goes like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a young woman engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The young woman's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Don't be afraid. You have found favor, and God is going to... I did. I did some editing here, folks. So, Jennifer, yep. Jennifer's mischievous. Okay, ah. listeners, just in case you didn't know, Jennifer is mischievous. This is what Jennifer wrote. I'm reading it, Jennifer. Okay. Okay. So the Lord said, "God is going to get you prego." <laughs> I'm 
for nothing nothing will be impossible with God. <laughs> okay, we do have issues with the whole scenario. And so I was trying to summarize and break it down a little bit. Okay. Okay. Yep. We, Sorry. we we get it. We get it. That's okay. Yep. Um I should have warned then... you. <laughs> I guess I should have read this over, run over before. <laughs> Now we're going to sit here and laugh and be silly. Okay, but we have to go on. Okay, so Mary says, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So those are the passages that Diaz is hinting at or pulling off of or bouncing off of, if you will, as she reflects these women who are positioned within biblical texts, perhaps in ways that help her to talk about Native or Indigenous people's realities, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So listeners, with those scenes fresh in your mind, here is Natalie Diaz's poem. If Eve Sidestealer and Mary Busted Chest ruled the world, what if... Eve was an Indian, and Adam was never needed from the earth. Eve was earth, and ribs were her idea all along. What if Mary was an Indian, and when Gabriel visited her wigwam, she was away at a monthly wick clinic, receiving eggs, boxed cheese, and peanut butter instead of Jesus. And listeners, let me do an aside right here to say that WIC is W-I-C, which stands for Women, Infants, and Children, and it's a food supplement program so that unmoneyed women, women without money, can get food for their children and themselves. I'm going to read that stanza again, and then I'm going to go on. What if Mary was an Indian, and when Gabriel visited her wigwam, she was away at a monthly wick clinic, receiving eggs, boxed cheese, and peanut butter instead of Jesus? What if God was an Indian, with turquoise wings and coral breasts, who invented a game called white man chess, played on silver boards with all white pieces? pawns and kings, and only one side, the white side, and the more they won, the more they were beaten. What if the world was an Indian whose head and back were flat from being strapped to a cradleboard as a baby, and when she slept she had nightmares lit up by yellow-haired men and ships scraping anchors in her throat? What if she wailed all night while great waves rose up, carrying the fleets across her flat back over the edge of the flat world? Isn't it interesting how poetry hushes us? (laughs) Yes, yes. You read a poem that's powerful and there's a hush. There really is, or at least in my experiences, there ought to be. Right? It ought to leave us with something to mull over or feeling 
slightly changed from having heard these thoughts or this perspective, you know? Yeah. This kind of language shifts the atmosphere. (laughs) And that's what it's supposed to do. It's it's, it's supposed to create a shift in consciousness. Yeah. And we are supposed to have our, you know, ratiocination, our rational, logical, compulsive thinking placed on pause Mm -hmm. and other Mm -hmm. parts of us engaged. So when we feel that hush before a poem or we feel that wondering or that pondering or that engagement of the heart, that's that's a, such a good thing. We don't have to leap right to what it means. We can get to what it means through a process of of engaging with it. And I'm just reminding listeners that always the first thing that we ask when we read a poem is, what what do you notice or what do I notice about the poem? And I would say, Jennifer, that And I know that we didn't talk about this when we prepared for this episode, but I've been thinking about this poem and and reading it, of course, since we prepared. And the thing that I notice, I notice the what ifs. Mm -hmm. What if Eve was an Indian? What if Mary was an Indian? What if God was an Indian? What if the world was an Indian? And when I always in poetry, repetition means, hey, there's mm-hmm. something to pay attention to here. Mm-hmm. There's something mm-hmm. that the poem is emphasizing. It works that way in biblical poetry, too, as you know. Totally, yeah. And I, I want to, I think it's always a good idea to state the obvious. And one yep. of the obvious things is that the poem is calling an Indian perspective into consideration of these biblical texts, because anywhere you have... I like to say biblical allusion is biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, it's biblical commentary, right? Go ahead, jump in. Right. Well, but I think also, and I think this may be obvious as well, but I'd also want to push you to say, why is she choosing biblical characters, right? Why? Yes. Why? She's using, you know, she's bringing in this, this vocabulary for grief for poverty for trauma but why is why does it work <laughs> yeah. that she's chosen these two women in particular yeah well the first thing that i would say about that is that biblical texts <laughs> this is one way that i like to put it christians and biblical texts have brought a lot of bad news to Native <laughs> Americans. That's right. That's right. And That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Grappling with biblical texts is one way that Native writers mm-hmm. attempt to talk back. Yes. Right. Because biblical texts were used so consistently to justify right. colonial domination. Right. And also, I mean, you know this. Children were removed from loving families and placed in missionary schools. We see the horrifying news about mass graves in Canada, and they, they're in the United States as well. Right. There were missionary schools in the United States, and 
children, Native children in these missionary schools were uh, forced to not speak their language, not practice their own religious traditions, forced mm-hmm. to convert. There's a a library that I go to near my house. It's Loyola Library, and it's a great library. There's a large mural on the wall, and the mural shows a Spanish-looking conquistador with a sword forcing an indigenous person to bow before a Bible. And so the Bible is a fearsome object, and these are texts of terror for Native Americans. And when you integrate them into a poem, as a Native writer, you're having an opportunity to talk back, to uh, adapt the text to your own rhetorical purposes. It's an act of textual power. I think that is a great comment to pause on. and. Give our listeners a moment to hear this message from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more. Gene, I felt like I kind of cut you off there with right before our ad break, but I, I loved the powerful language you were using to almost breathe life into this historic element of this well, this country's history, right? Yeah. And and the the complexity of the various peoples who were here first and others who came, or peoples who were here and others who came later, and the coming together and the and all the horrific ways those encounters took place. We just had not too long ago, Columbus Day was a holiday, a national holiday. And of course, some people refer to it in different ways. What is it that you, how is it you refer to that day? Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. Yeah. And we celebrate it as Indigenous Peoples Day at my institution. Nice. That wasn't happening around where I live. But I wanted to share just very briefly, in case people aren't familiar, when I talk about, when I do biblical classes, I try, there are usually times I have a chance to talk about the story of Joshua or the conquering of Canaan or some sort of biblical, you know, one of those biblical passages that has been used over the centuries in more than one place to justify going in and conquering other people. When it came to this country, to this continent, people came to this country or to this landmass, however you want to look at it, with a, with something in hand referred to as the doctrine of discovery. And we, I'm looking at a particular webpage, so we'll share the website specifically in our notes. This is one that's for Indigenous corporate training, interestingly enough, and it's put together by people in Canada. So I'm, I'm looking at it just at, because they do a nice job of explaining a few things about it. The main thing I wanted to highlight for folks is the intent of the doctrine and the way it played out. So the doctrine of discovery provided a framework for Christian explorers in the name of their deity, their God, to lay claim to territories uninhabited by Christians. And that's the key here, right? If the lands were, quote, vacant, (laughs) then they could be defined as discovered and and sovereignty of their king um, was claimed. One of the keys, though, is because of biblical texts that teach people to think of others who 
have a different worship practice as not deserving of God's love, their God, right? There are biblical passages that do that, that teach people over and over and over again that pe- that others who worship other gods are evil. Uh, they're not, you know, there's something wrong with them or they're just, they're deserving of God's wrath because they're not worshiping this God. And this idea and framework is played out as people came to this continent so that it justified for them, unfortunately, in their minds, it all made sense that if people here were not worshiping God through Christ, if they weren't Christian, then they weren't actually fully human or they were considered non-human or subhuman. And so in with that category in mind, then the land wasn't inhabited by people. It was inhabited by these subgroups that are not fully human. Or they were, you know, we we heard a lot, we know a lot about the language of saving the wild creatures, right, who need to be saved in this language. I don't agree with the language I'm trying to relate to what they were using. Yeah. So indigenous peoples were considered non-human so that the land wasn't actually inhabited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Quite so, a rationalization, a really torturous exactly. rationalization. And also, I do want to say one other thing. And this sure. is this is a thing that I think surprises people in my classes, at least, that the language that we see in the book of Joshua, where it refers to the Canaanites and um, as people that we know are already living there, but God has promised us the land anyway, so we're going to go in and take it. And so complicated, right? Yeah. But the labels and the names of the people who were already living in Canaan were then taken and attributed to the peoples already living in this continent. So it kind of played out in many ways as part of my point here. Yeah. But that that indigenous people would be referred to as Canaanites would then justify for all of these Christian soldiers and commanders, you know, that, well, of course, God is giving us the land that the Canaanites live in. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, a, there's a piece of it, of, of what you were saying, that I want to come back to and use as a springboard back into the poem. Okay. So you were saying that colonizers took a cue from not just the book of Joshua, but especially the book of Joshua. But there are so many biblical texts that imply that if you don't worship Yahweh God, right. you are less than. Yes. You are less deserving. You are less than. Yeah. There's a very interesting God image in the poem. Yes. I would like to to read that again. And I started off by saying that this poem is very interested in introducing an indigenous person's perspective into both of the biblical texts that we read and also into the history of the United States. And one way that Diaz introduces an indigenous perspective is by introducing an indigenous deity, an indigenous god character. Mm-hmm. So I just want to revisit stanza three. What if God was an Indian with turquoise wings and coral breasts? And those images, turquoise wings and coral breasts, I thought to myself, 
that sounds like an Aztec god image. And I want to <laughs> yep. see if I can figure out um, which, that a- is. Yeah, which Aztec deity that right. is. And I right. don't know. The poem doesn't say, and I certainly haven't asked Natalie Diaz, but I was looking at a lot of different Aztec deities, and there is an earth goddess called Coatlicue, and I think that this is a reference to Coatlicue, and I'll tell you why. So Coatlicue is a maternity, fertility, and childbirth goddess. She's an earth goddess, and she's often portrayed with turquoise wings and also has a serpent skirt. Hmm. We've talked before on this podcast about in some cultural contexts, the serpent as an image of wisdom. That also connects to the Genesis story, obviously. But I think it's really interesting that Coatlicue is a maternity, mm-hmm. a goddess of, of maternity and childbirth. Mm-hmm. And the figure of the young maiden Mary in dialogue with Gabriel and as a carrier of Jesus of Nazareth is also a maternity figure. And Mm -hmm. as we talked about at the very beginning of the episode, Eve is mother of all living. So we don't often think about, or maybe some of us don't think enough about Eve as a mother figure, but she is a mother figure. And what I think um, Coatlicue has in common with both Mary and Eve, is that they are maternal figures. They are connected with maternity. And they're very different. And I'd like to talk about that difference. But first, I think we just want to note that Diaz has chosen two figures of motherhood from the Jewish script, well, Jewish scriptures and then also Christian scriptures, has chosen these two kind of maternal figures to pair with an Aztec mother goddess figure. And it's a really interesting way of reconnecting divinity with maternity. Right. Or just with women. With women. In general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially given how, how much Eve does stand in for women in general, though I agree with you that she is also the mother of all living, and it is, which is a piece that is underappreciated. But right, this connection of divinity um, to women in general, I really think is quite powerful in her and the way she weaves these together. Me too. I would note, though, that Coatlicue is portrayed with so much more power than ah. Mary. I, I do see Eve as a powerful figure, but at least in, in art history, I, I, I can't really, sometimes I can't separate the actual biblical text from images of Mary in art history. And the, the image of Mary that haunts me the most is actually this pre-Raphaelite image of the Annunciation. And Mary is this really thin, milk-toast white woman with a lily entertaining this angel. And she has no, <laughs> no agency whatsoever. 
Well, um, <laughs> and that is and that is part of the problem that feminists want to raise about this story. Yes, but, yes, yes. And, and and I've read some of those accounts, and I, and so I do think that Diaz is juxtaposing. These two images, mm-hmm. I mean, I do see mm-hmm. Eve as powerful, mm-hmm. but she's often not spoken about. Right. As... In the story, yeah, yeah, let's be clear. In the narrative, she is not really doing much, except she, I mean, that's not true. She is stepping up. She is being curious. She's doing really some great things. And then her role is pretty much done for this for the biblical context, you know, for the biblical narrative. But she also, pops out a, she can, a child or two, but then that's about it. She right? also gets dissed for that. Like I she, know, I know, she, I know. she initiates this enormous action <laughs> right. that that's makes right. the entire narrative unfold, but then she gets dissed for yes. it. And so Over the way the that she's interpreted, yes. yeah, right, um, kind right. of removes from that some of that power. So. Exactly. I think it's really yeah. interesting for Diaz to juxtapose this incredible, as very powerful-looking Aztec goddess figure with yeah. these other two figures. Does try to restore power to these two biblical characters because, as you pointed out, it's what if they ruled the world, right? What if mm-hmm. they ruled the the world? And I'm kind of haunted by the ifs in the poem. Yeah. And the suggestion seems to be, I mean, there's not a, you know, sometimes poetry raises questions that it doesn't answer. That's part of what a poem can do. But there is this question, like, what if even Mary ruled the world? Like, what if women's perspectives were, um, had played a stronger role, right? Or, Or perhaps even the flip role, because it has been predominantly a male's interpretation, a male's voice and perspective meeting men's needs. So, yeah, what if it had been Eve was an Indian and and Adam was never needed from the earth, right? Needed like we need dough. Yep. And Eve was Earth, and ribs yeah. were her idea yeah. all along. Instead of it being this thing that's been thrown at her, like you said, right? This thing that many people demonize her for. Yeah, and I like that you called out that line. What if Eve was Earth? I think the poem is asking us to consider an Earth goddess. Like, okay, right. what if we right. thought of the right. divine in terms? of an earth goddess. And right. I'm I'm going to answer that. It's probably always a bad idea to answer any question raised by poetry. <laughs> but um but we probably would have more respect for the earth. Policy might be more easily oriented toward protecting the earth. I think childbirth would be viewed as an incredibly powerful act and Mothers would be um, thought of as incredibly powerful beings. I think the earth goddess figures do tend to highlight women's power. And, and Diaz is asking us to consider it and asking us to consider it in connection with Mary and Eve, which I, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I... I... Really, I wanted to say something about this because I really love her second stanza. What if Mary was an Indian and when Gabriel visited her wigwam, she was away at a monthly wig clinic receiving eggs, boxed boxed cheese and peanut butter instead of Jesus. 
what I love about, there's so many things I love about this, but one of them is how this brings Mary, this puts Mary on the level of being another human like the rest of us, which is a really interesting thing that's, you know, the history of interpretation for Mary and putting her on this pedestal of being a virginal mother and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to get into that. But I love that it's the way she is relating this particular element of Christian scripture and characters and people and parts of the Christian tradition. She's she's saying, bringing it down to the level of real humans. And by the way, this whole reality of where, what this introduction of Christianity has done to these native indigenous peoples has placed them in the situations where many of them are needing the women and infants and children clinic. And this image of receiving eggs, boxed cheese. I mean, I think of Velveeta. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you think of by that, but, and peanut butter. I mean, it's, it is, these are the most basic, inexpensive forms of protein and sustenance, right? And they're easy to put on the shelves at a food bank or whatever, right? But, you know, this whole idea of this, um, you know, supernatural visitation by Gabriel and, and what if she just missed it because she was out trying to take care of her needs the way we have been doing for, you know, for hundreds of years now because of you all, you know? Like yes. This. Yeah. <laughs> and you often talk, Jennifer, not always on the podcast, but when we are talking, you often talk about your, let's say, frustration with versions of Christian tradition that overemphasize the spiritual and fail to emphasize the material. And one of the things that this stanza does is really emphasize the material. That's right. So I can understand why you especially like that. That's right. I don't know that we're going to put a nice, neat bow on this. Poems often lead us into inquiries that remain open-ended. We cannot always tie it up with a pretty bow. Um, And this particular poem has so much in it, we could spend another 30 minutes easily talking about, because there are some really powerful lines in here we didn't get to in this particular conversation, right? The ones at the end about the yellow-haired men and ships scraping anchors in her throat. Um, Really powerful imagery that's trying, I think, trying to bring us to a different angle on this encounter, right? Yeah. Of the people, the people of this, of these lands, um, and these others, these yellow haired, (laughs) and so forth. Um, Yeah, the trips across the ocean and what that unfolded for people already here. Yeah, the poem really asks us to consider all of this from an Indian perspective. And I invite readers again to carry on the inquiry by maybe picking up When My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz. And also, as we approach Thanksgiving, which is this huge American holiday, like ironically about Mm -hmm. feasting, I can you know, remind myself and remind all of us that not everyone views Thanksgiving in the same way. Not everybody tells the Thanksgiving story 
in the same way. And some of us, as we approach the end of November, are preparing to observe a national day of mourning. And Mm -hmm. there are very different stories about Thanksgiving. And I guess I call all of us, including myself, to think about the variety of perspectives with which we approach this holiday, with which we approach history, and with which we approach the Bible. Anything else before we close? I am grateful that you brought this poem to my attention, Jean. I very much enjoyed reading it and reflecting on the things she's engaging. And I really like that you suggested we engage this right before Thanksgiving. I think it's it can be easier to go with the flow than to call something out and to say, you know, <laughs> there's more to this story. <laughs> There's more to this um, this country's history, and let's be more honest. Let's be more conscious. Let's be intentional about understanding. So thank you for bringing this poem and this poet to my attention. Thank you so much for talking about it with me. Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Yes. We'll see and you we'll, next time. We'll see you next time. And by the way, we may really see you soon because Jennifer and I are making plans to take this podcast to YouTube so that you could see our faces while we're talking. If you really want to do that. (laughs) I really want to do that. No, I know you do. I just don't know how many people want to see us. But yeah, if you want to see us. People like faces. I know. People like faces. All right. Well, um, we'll catch you next time. Yep. Hey, this is Matt Byrne editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 5 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes every other week. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Until our next wild conversation, we'll see you then.